Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 48 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And he goes by many names, but I'm going to say my old friend, Dr. Pete Stansky, is joining us today. Hey, Shane, it's great to be back on the show. And uh, for those of you who sent me messages, because um, I wasn't on the last episode, I, I am still here. Uh, the rumors of my demise and death are, are greatly exaggerated, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> so look, you're a hard man to get hold of, Pete. Obviously, you must be important. Listeners, you can only imagine when and where I'm recording this today. But Pete, you know, where are you? Um, what are you up to these days? I am in Melbourne. Uh, and look, some of you may know that I've just, uh, well, not just, uh, last year I took over as a head of solution architecture for Australia and New Zealand. So uh, uh, that kind of comes with, you know, as Shane, you know this pretty well, comes with a whole bunch of new responsibilities, which means uh, I have less and less time in my diary. So when I started this show uh, four years ago, um, I had no idea how much of a full-time job this would be. And uh, so uh, yeah, so officially, thank you, Shane, for, for taking over the show and uh, driving it when I, when I cannot. You're welcome. So, you know, I don't see you that much these days. What exactly does a head of solution architecture do? Oh, look, it's a lot of fun, um, as every role I think AWS happens to be. But uh, uh, as the head of solution architecture, I have this awesome job, by the way, um, of managing some of the best, most amazing, talented solution architects I think we have in the industry, um, which also comes with being a manager of managers. I have multiple tiers of managers I'm looking after. Um, I get to spend a lot of time thinking about the people's careers and uh, how to you know, evolve what I call the purple unicorns, the, uh, the unicorn that are the solution architect that are hard to find in the wild, how to make it more purple or more unique and help them to uh, focus on some really interesting um, you know, te tech domains as well as helping them to become more well-rounded. I have the uh, exciting um, opportunity to work with internal teams and sponsors and be a sponsor, in fact, on a whole bunch of internal initiatives like the Unicorn Gym, which uh, uh, Watch to Space hopefully will take to the uh, the public um, maybe in the next 12 months. Uh, but also externally, I get to do a lot of cool things, new things. Like, for example, last week I was uh, doing something called the Well-Architected Review Deep Dive, which is uh, kind of new for APAC. Um, this is only the second time we've done one where we actually spend one or more weeks with customers and a whole bunch of solution architects come together uh, and TAMs and account managers to sit down with the customer's uh, team to work on and review um, your architecture. You know, we do a, a well-architected review, we do a, a migration readiness assessment, we do a whole bunch of whiteboarding with the team, we come up with some cool recommendations, help you, uh, um, you know, implement them, um, and yeah, you know, be part of your team stand-up. So it's a lot of fun. So yeah, it's a it's a great role, and fundamentally the best way to describe it is uh, I get to be a, a bit of a a CTO, customer facing, and be an SA manager uh, leading the internal team. So, yeah, full time job, Shane. Awesome. And I'm grateful you could spend the time here with us today. Hey, uh, I'm sure the listeners are as I well. I don't want to miss an episode one bit. I love this stuff. Excellent. All right, listeners, we've had quite a few themed episodes. You know, we spoke about AppSec last episode and everything the last month from container networking through to getting started on AWS. Now, we've received, you know, your feedback, and the general consensus is these deeper you know, theme sessions are hitting the mark. But as we all know, our platform isn't static and nor should it be. 
Pete, we've had 11 updates alone today. You know, a lot is going on. The service teams are busy. Indeed. And if you guys, you know, keep tabs on these things, I mean, between like, used to be between, you know, one to three, then three to five, then five to seven. And you know, having like 11 today alone is phenomenal. You know, we, we really are investing heavily in a platform. There's nothing ever that's static in this platform at all, Shane. Yeah. And look, with that high velocity of updates, we occasionally, you know, we need to pause and that's what today's show is about. So we're going to come at you with a raft of short, sharp, but important updates that have occurred in the month of May. That's May 2019. And being Tech Chat, we'll cover these at the level you expect. But more importantly, we're going to ask the hard questions. How does that sound, Pete? Shane, I can't argue with that because that's uh, that's what Tech Chat is all about. Going deep, it's uh, speak the geek language, right? Absolutely. But before that, on with the news. So summits and more summits. Gabe was in Stockholm last time we chatted on the show. And since we recorded, Chicago and Warsaw have been run and done. But where is the Summit Roadshow this week? And where is it in the coming weeks? Well, we have still plenty of summits uh, going on. Um, and in the next month or so, we've got a whole truck full of them. Um, in fact, we have summits uh, in Taipei, Taiwan on the 12th and to the 13th of June in Tokyo, Japan, 12th to the 14th. And then uh, there's a bit of a gap till Shanghai in China kicks off on the 20th of July, Shane. Yeah. And look, other than summits, there are other events out there that possibly worth reminding the audience. Yeah, exactly. So pop in to the AW events in your favorite search engine as a, as a key term, uh, and you will see a raft of uh, specialist days coming up. Things like AWS Awesome Day, which is a free online technical day that you may even find a session by Shane Baldacino here uh, from the show. Um, there's also AWS Innovate, which is designed to educate and inspire the less tech focused uh, uh, folks and IT pros who might be focusing on operations. Uh, Dev days, we love Dev days here. These are uh, focused on developers and builders alike and uh, more specific events targeting uh, your curiosity. So there's a whole raft of these. So fundamentally, um, on the updates front, uh, we have no new regions to announce today. Um, we've announced that a few already, but uh, that's not to say that we're not busily working on more. And uh, we can tell you that there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes here in APAC. Uh, you know, um, across the regions, there's so much focus on uh, customer feedback. So uh, we still have 21 regions, but we have bumped up our AZ, our availability zone count, up to 66, um, adding a few more in the last couple of weeks. And just before Pete tells us where they are, let's just quickly recap on what an AZ is. Availability zones give customers the ability to operate production applications and databases that are more highly available, fault tolerant and scalable than would be possible in a single data center. So each AZ or availability zone can be multiple data centers and at full scale can be hundreds of thousands of servers. You know, that is, think of that in terms of scale here. You know, they are fully isolated partitions of our global infrastructure and they work together to form a logical region. They have their own power infrastructure using separate power supplies and the AZs are physically separated by a meaningful distance, you know, many kilometers or miles from the other AZs, you know, to have that separate blast radius. All of the AZs are interconnected with high bandwidth, low latency networking over fully redundant, dedicated metro fibers providing high throughput, low latency networking between the AZs. You know, we're talking hundreds of terabits per second here. And I think what's important here is the distance part, Pete. You know, without getting into the whole physics speed of light thing, 
that I know I won't do justice. Maybe I'll just handball this over to you here. <laughs> Thanks. This is going to be a bit of a theme for the uh, a couple of segments here. But fundamentally, Shem, I mean, you think about it, the speed of light is about uh, you know two hundred ninety nine million seven hundred ninety two four hundred fifty eight meters per second, or also known as uh, three hundred thousand kilometers per second. Or if you in the um, other parts of the world using a non metric system, that's one hundred eighty six. Thousand um, two hundred eighty-two miles per second. So that's that's a lot of speed. So if you uh, could travel at that speed, uh, which is hard to do, uh, but if you could, uh, you could go around the Earth seven and a half times per second. Right? And uh, if you actually wanted to go uh, from here, from Earth, and travel to the edge of the observable universe, that's 46.5 billion years to get there. Um, so, yes, speed is certainly important, and distance go play hand in hand. And uh, Shane, as a bit of a side note, uh, on the metric system, I was actually uh, thinking about this uh, as I was uh, doing some research on speed of light. Um, it was first proposed, by the way, this is the metric system, by a, um, a French astronomer, a tradition called Gabriel Mouton, um, back in 1670, um, which was then standardized into um, the Republic of France in 1790s, uh, which is how it became uh, used more widely worldwide. But at the same time, and uh, for those of you who like history, uh, the Brits and the French didn't always see eye to eye. And uh, the British imperial unit system, uh, which came into play, um, was uh, also called the British Weights and Measuring um, Act, uh, which came into play in 1824. So it's actually interesting to see how uh, some of these metric systems and um, imperial systems have been sort of fighting and how we actually mix and match kilometers and miles. Mm, I'm still trying to work some of them out of my life. You know, as a bit of a builder and tinkerer myself in my spare time, I'm still often dealing with half inch and three eight inch, you know, drive sockets. Um, bring on the metric oh, yeah. system. The Physics lesson done. You know, I think what we're trying to explain here, the network performance of these logical lasers, you know, connected by hundreds of terabits per second is sufficient enough to accomplish, you know, synchronous replication. So things like clustered databases or maybe even lockstep systems together are possible because, you know, the communication is so fast between these systems. They are so close to each other. Oh, look, and if you sum all this up, the benefits of, for, for builders really is to use multiple availability zones as a very powerful mechanism to help you build highly scalable apps and systems and, you know, partitioning your systems so they can actually be, you know, highly available available and highly survivable. So the uh, multiple AZs model that we employ within our AWS regions really helps you to simplify that because we've basically abstracted the entire infrastructure. So all of these are fully isolated from each other, which allows you to uh, architect for service disruption, right? And you often heard us talk about, you know, things fail and they fail all the time. Uh, the joke that I used to always have with some customers used to be, you know, a data center is either, you know, just had a, a service disruption or is about to, you know, are your architectures designed to cope with that, right? So we think about partitioning across multiple AZs, um, you're going to isolate and hopefully shape your platform to be much more secure. And by the way, if you want to know more about how these things are designed, there's a great video um, from reInvent that James Hamilton uh, talked about um, and actually goes through a great deal of detail around uh, uh, how much power, how many gigawatts we consume, as well as how we wire up our regions. It's a, a fascinating video to watch. Very good. Okay, so AWS 101 lesson over there. What about AZs again? Yes, yeah, so look, we digress a little bit here, but yeah, AZs uh, that we've just added. Uh, so we've added um, the third AZs into uh, Mumbai in India, and also in South Korea, uh, we've added another one. So that takes us to an account of 66 availability zones um, as part of our global footprint. And just remember, each AZ is not a single data center. It's multiple data centers. It's a cluster of clusters. So look, it's these little continued incremental changes that makes the AWS cloud the AWS cloud. And I probably shouldn't have said little here, you know, as it is a huge undertaking. You know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of, you know, servers. 
um, you know, it's an isolated part of the AWS cloud. So a big shout out to our facilities peeps who are listening. But Pete, I probably feel like I'm holding you up here. Well, not really, but you know, the show does have to go on. Uh, look, uh, a couple of things to consider is when you talk about us, and people often ask us about our strategy, and it's pretty simple, right? Customers always want choice. They want uh, you know things faster, so services faster. Uh, and also, there is a third leg of this tool chain. Do you want to enlighten us what that is? Which is uh, kind of uh, kind of key for the next segment. No one ever said I want to pay more money for something. So customers want things cheaper. Absolutely. So starting May twenty fourth, um, Amazon Connect, which is our super cool and super popular, uh, you know. Uh, phone system in the cloud, uh, fully managed by us, um, to which we spoke in our past episodes. And I think I even did a demo of it, in fact, a little while back. Um, so pricing for US inbound direct um, inward dialing on DIDs, essentially phone numbers, has uh, decreased from uh, you know a, a third of a cent to uh, 0.22 of a cent per minute, which is kind of significant on scale. And also for outbound um, calling, it's decreased from uh, 0.65 of a cent to 0.48 of a cent per minute, which is, um, if I'm not mistaken, about somewhere around a 26% cheaper. Um, but there's the only caveat here is that it's uh, not for the entire um, availability of Amazon Connect. It is actually specific to Amazon Connect in US East, which is North Virginia, as well as Oregon, which is US West. Look, 26% is huge. Mm. And given Amazon Connect isn't your typical, you know, hardware-bound phone system, you know, it's software-defined. I tell you, Pete, you know, if I had the volumes to justify my effort, I would probably consider changing, you know, if I was a region like Ohio because, you know, after all, it's just code. It is just code. And by the way, guys, if you would like to have um, someone from the AWS Connect team on the show, um, just let us know. We'll uh, we'll happily get them on and, uh, you know, maybe do some more, you know, phone call demos on the show. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. So that's the news done. On with the show. So other than hosting this show, I'm a field essay and it's a great role. I've got to experience and taste all facets of IT architecture and even IT culture around Australia. These days, I don't know how it landed my way, but I'm pretty fortunate to be dealing with a handful of Australia's best and brightest tech companies. But it poses its own set of unique challenges. Now, obviously, everyone you know is on their own unique cloud journey here and at different phases, but I often get asked a few common questions. So, okay, Pete, two questions I usually get asked, but I'm going to give you three okay. guesses. What do you think they are? All right, let me think about it. Um, who are you and uh, what are you doing here? Uh, not, not it. Not it. All right. but maybe. <laughs> okay. How do I get my, my hands on a deep racer? That does get asked. You know, it is sucking up a bit of oxygen. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the well, probably the most common one, I, I think, would be something like, uh, is this service available in Sydney? And if not, when? That is absolutely true. <laughs> but, you know, if there was a fourth question there, you know, because I think you realistically only got one out of the two here, is this service in Sydney? Right. It would be, you know, because my customers aren't once for using ClickOps, you know, they are using our SDKs and DSLs like CloudFormation. What they often ask me is, does it have CloudFormation yeah. support? Good one. And yeah, and because like they are instantiating resources from build pipelines at scale, it's, you know, important. So it's made me happy to see that we've just added CloudFormation support for two additional newish services in the last few weeks which will ease the adoption, not just for my customers, but for those around the world. So about five episodes ago, you and I, Pete, we spoke about AWS transfer for SFTP, you know, allowing to you to access an S3 bucket via SFTP. It was a pretty monumental thing. Um, you know, people still use SFTP for some pretty important pub sub patterns like EDI, um, you know, in a kind of like EDI-ish mm-hmm. way, maybe a message interchange, you know, even banks use this pattern. 
Today, many people use S3 for single page apps with static objects and dynamic going back via patterns such as API Gateway or ALB and Lambda. So we all love S3. But the adoption of AWS transfer for SFTP has been put on a block list for many of these mature customers due to the lack of CloudFormation support. But that changes It does now. indeed. You can now use AWS CloudFormation templates to uh, automate the deployment uh, of your entire solutions that also include AWS transfer for SFTP service. Um, you can now also upload and associate also RSA host keys with your server. CloudFormation supports both server and user functions, so you can do everything from service instantiation on the server side through identity and access management assignment on the user side. Um, and all this can be done, obviously, via both uh, YAML and JSON in your CloudFormation. And uh, go check out the specs for more information. Excellent. And the next feature here probably isn't one that excites most people. Look, I'll be honest, it doesn't excite me, but I get it's important. And that's backup. You know, if it excites you, let us know. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. Convince me why or even make me laugh and we'll organize some swag your way. So you can now use AWS CloudFormation for tasks related to your backup plans backup vaults and resource selections. Same deal as what Pete just mentioned with JSON and YAML. It allows you to tie in you know, your KMS keys and everything into one chunk of code with a simple and familiar cron expression for scheduling. So I'm excited about CloudFormation support, maybe not so much about backup. Well, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about that because I'm, I'm really surprised. Um, but I will say that backups are very, very important and I'll leave it at that. And also, um, they become even more important when you actually need it. So these two quick uh, CloudFormation or as we call it CFN updates uh, are always good, Shane. They are always welcome. So Pete, percentiles, you know, given you have a PhD and I know you know your math, tell me about percentiles and yes, you know, I've got a point here. Okay, so percentiles are, are really kind of interesting. So they, they come out of basically statistics to help you measure things. Um, and what they really help you with is uh, indicate where a value falls within a particular range. Um, so percentiles generally kind of come back to our observable um, occurrences of numbers in a particular particular you know uh, discrete range. So for example, if you have a score and uh, you're at the uh, 86th percentile, um, where the 86 is the percentile rank, it equals to the value uh, below which 86% of all the observable things uh, may actually be found. So what that really means is when you think about percentiles is where are your distributions of things actually occurring? So if you're having error rates at certain uh, occurrences and within certain percentiles, that's where you'll find um, that information. So uh, yeah, bit of a bit of a stats, kind of a math head uh, thing, but uh, you know, this is kind of very important. Hope that helped you out, Shane. It's uh, clear as mud. I mean, crystal clear, Pete. <laughs> All right. So percentiles are awesome. And I really got involved with them, I think, in a meaningful way when shopping for bandwidth a long time ago in a past life. You know, I think I was after 200 megabits at the 95th percentile. So why am I talking about percentiles? Well, Pete, we all use CloudWatch and it's a staple of monitoring resources in AWS because after all, you know, if you're not keeping score, it is just practice. So today, CloudWatch supports metric filters, you know, allowing you to turn log data into numerical CloudWatch metrics that you can graph or set an alarm on. With metric filters, you can, for example, create a CloudWatch metric that counts a number of errors in a log or represents a latency value from your web servers. You can then visualize those metrics with CloudWatch dashboards and then define alarms based on thresholds with CloudWatch alarms. But Pete, that's awesome and all, but there's issues with this. You know, how about if I say, you know, you're logging connections to your database engine and it's slowly increasing over time. Maybe at first you're alerting on 500 connections, you know, concurrent mm -hmm. connections, but as your website gets busier because, you know, you're doing amazing, not due to poor code, you know, your connections are going to be creeping up. So this can mean you're reaching this high watermark quite often and you're having to adjust and tweak your metrics. 
Or how about the inverse? Maybe metrics are going down because you've optimized your web application. You know, you found that uh, missing index or, you know, you're not having to make as many calls to your database engines. Changes or dips, the problem is, you know, sometimes they may not ever get mm-hmm. picked up. And that's where this announcement comes in. So personally, I'm pretty excited here because I've had to live through what I've just mentioned before, you know, constantly having to tweak these monitoring platforms. And I'll happily say I'm even more happy than the CloudFormation support here. I know it's hard to believe, but Pete, tell us what's happened. Man, you're more excited about this than you are about backups. I love it. So the CloudWatch uh, logs um, is introducing support for percentiles on your metric profiles. So uh, percentiles are really useful when you are looking at um, the exhibiting of you know, those connections or large variances in your data or in your performance. Um, and they really help you to really understand your data better and make make better choices and alerting um, when it comes to monitoring relevant information. I think, Pete, for me, you know, when I was on the coalface, it was about spotting the outliers, you know, those needles in the haystack, which is really critical when you're trying to deem normal. And also, who likes getting paged for no real reason? And with um, CloudWatch percentiles, users can visualize the, you know, your alarms at you know P90, P95, P99.9, or any other relevant percentile that you're looking for. And uh, percentiles are you know produced automatically for you. All users have to do is select what percentile you wish to use when visualizing your metrics or defining an alarm threshold. And all of those pain points you just spoke about, Shane, before um, tend to go away. So if you're you know using CloudWatch today, and I hope you are. Um, we really hope you're going to enjoy this new feature because uh, setting up alerts on percentiles is probably going to save you time and reduce false positives, um, which means you might be able to sleep through the night uh, by reducing the number of alerts the ops guys get. Yeah, and look, it's, I think it's you know it's really a bit of a no-brainer here and something I know I'll be talking to my customers about. As with all other CloudWatch metrics, percentile metrics can be accessed using CloudWatch Console, SDKs, or APIs. So go forth and dev. Indeed. Now, listen, Shane, quick question for you. So when you were young, what did you want to be or grow up to be? What do you mean, Pete? I'm still young. But look, (laughs) jokes aside, I want to do many things, you know, from racing motorbikes to computers and even something to do with space. Indeed. And speaking of space, now Jeff Bezos has uh, made some announcements around um, going to space and moons and Mars and so forth. And, uh, you know, he has this thing called the regret minimization framework, which I think is really, really awesome. Um, so it's no surprise, by the way, that that reInvent 2018, I was actually there in Las Vegas when it got actually, got actually announced and I got told 24 hours ahead of this that it was going to happen. I was like super excited, uh, which feels like almost yesterday. We announced AWS Ground Station, Shane, which is all about communication in space, right? It's a fully managed service that lets you control satellite communication, you know, all the uplinks and downlinks and process satellite data and scale your um, satellite operations. So ground stations really are facilities that are scattered across uh, the Earth that use antennas to provide communication between Earth and your particular satellite that's probably uh, spinning around uh, the planet. You almost sound like a supervillain here, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Love it, love it. Look, uh, look, okay, I guess we're not really targeting most organizations here because last time I checked, my customers, they don't have satellites. And look, you, your customers may not. And look, on the show in the past, we've talked about um, spectral images and how, it, how the satellites actually collect uh, weather information at different uh, spectrums outside of the visible light. So there's lots of use cases for this. But fundamentally, um, you know, it is 2019 and uh, we collect lots of information uh, from, the sell- from satellites uh, which are spinning all around the world um, you know, and communicating to ground stations to allow you to basically um, scale your operations out uh, in collecting that information. So the the good thing about this is that um, there's a lot of value because you only pay for what you use. Yeah, at least for myself, Pete, here, because I don't deal with satellites, let's leverage your wisdom here. And can you explain to me, 
I mean, our listeners, what a ground station is. All right, our listeners and Shane, um, I've spent a little bit of time in telco uh, comms, so yes, I can help out here a little bit. So look, we, we all think of satellites as being used for a whole wide different ranges of use cases, right? Like I mentioned about um, weather and forecasting and surface imaging, obviously telecommunications is the most obvious one. Uh, video broadcast, if you actually set yourself up uh, with the right equipment, you can even watch uh, uh, news presenters putting on their makeup before they do the actual feeds if you know how to tune into the right frequencies. So um, ground station, by the way, from, from us, um, now forms the core of basically global communication networking, right? Um, now, these facilities are scattered all around the planet and they provide basically means of connecting um, to the satellites that are up in space. So today you must either build your own ground stations, which is very expensive, obtain long-term contracts with uh, station providers, which again is also uh, you know uh, doing the, doing a vendor dance. Um, but often all of these uh, across multiple countries across the world provide uh, lots of opportunities uh, for satellites um, to communicate, and it also makes it really hard on you, the customer, to actually set these things up. So um, what we did was we actually made it simple. Uh, and let you actually, you know, consume it by the, you know, by 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 the hour, so to speak. Um, and uh, once all this data is actually collected by the, the actual um, ground stations, you need obviously servers and storage and networking in close proximity to the antennas to be able to process and store that information um, and transport that into something meaningful. So it sounds like a lot of heavy lifting there. You know, you're talking about servers, storage, networking, etc. And I would imagine we're talking some pretty large volumes of telemetry. So. On to AWS Ground Station. What is it and why? Yep. So look, the uh, the Ground Station service provides essentially direct access to all of the AWS services that you all know um, and also the global infrastructure uh, which provides you know, that low latency access to a global network uh, wherever you are, uh, whichever region you actually happen to be using, right? Now, this allows you to uh, control satellite communications via the ground station service. Uh, you can quickly ingest and process all of your satellite data, rapidly integrate that data with your existing applications and other services running in the AWS cloud. Uh, so for example, you can use uh, Amazon S3 to store uh, the downloaded data, uh, use Amazon Kinesis uh, data streams for managing data ingestion from those satellites, uh, SageMaker for, for perhaps uh, building custom machine learning applications or applying predictions. And by the way, um, if you actually, um, you know, again, put uh, NASA's um, uh, use of AWS uh, a couple of years ago uh, when they were uh, collecting all that information from the rover on Mars, um, they were actually using us. So that JPL NASA uh, you know, story was fantastic. They used so many of our services. They used a cell architecture for doing things. Uh, a lot of these things uh, that they did then uh, were done on AWS. Now imagine being able to do something very similar, including talking to your own satellites. Yeah, look, that's pretty cool there. But for me, what this really shows is a tight-knit integration of our platform. And if I was in the satellite game, the fact that you're only paying for the actual antenna time used, you know, and relying on a global footprint of ground stations to download the data when you need it and where you need it, instead of having to build and operate your own, you know, global ground station infrastructure is a real win. Gotcha. And like I've already mentioned and touched upon this, that you pay for what you use. There are low, no long-term contracts. And, uh, you know, you have the ability to rapidly scale out your um, satellite comms on demand whenever you actually need it on a global footprint um, this also saves you you know a truckload of money and energy and effort uh, in order to be able to set this thing up all right so not having dealt with satellites before how do i get started all right pretty simple so hop on the uh, aws console navigate to the uh, ground station um, console in your browser uh, and here you can identify the satellites you need to communicate with and uh, schedule what we call contact with those satellites now each contact consists of really a selected uh, satellite 
right? The start and end time, i.e. when you want to talk to the satellite um, and the ground station that uh, you want to actually connect via. Um, you can then, you know, review the contact times in your console, cancel those, uh, or reschedule those, by the way, up to uh, 15 minutes prior to the scheduled contact time, which is really, really important because these things float overhead uh, over those particular ground stations and they're only in contact for certain durations, which is why you select your start and end times. Now, also, after uh, scheduling a contact, you use the... Um, AWS uh, Ground Station EC2 Amy images uh, to launch EC2 instances for for contact. So a uh, you launch a command instance to receive the operational telemetry from the satellite and also transmit changes to the satellite's you know planned future activities. So obviously you talk to them, you, you tell them what their jobs are next, and these are obviously specific to your use case. Uh, and then you also have the downlink instance that receives. The, you know, the whole heavy lifting bulk of data uh, from your mission in space uh, from that satellite. And these instances fundamentally communicate with AWS Grand Station antennas via a gateway using an um, elastic network interface, ENI connection, that exists between the EC2 instances and the satellite antenna antennas for the duration of that contact period. So in the previous episode, we spoke about AppSec, you know, OWASP, CVEs, and so and on. security, yep. Totally security. And, you know, everything security. You know, can I take over your satellite? How are we ensuring that no one's going to be able to take control of this satellite? I'm just actually imagining this here. It kind of sounds a little bit comical, but I'm sure it's not. It's it's very real, right? So AWS Ground Station uses multiple measures really um, to protect their satellites from you know essentially unauthorized access. So prior to allowing um, you know contact with a satellite for the first time, uh, AWS actually onboards and identifies the satellite owner. Um, and associates the uh, the satellite with a designated customer account, which would be your account, right? Um, so the customer is then able to use that account with the ground station um, to be able to schedule those contacts. Um, and those are very, very obviously important. So prior to each contact, the uh, AWS uh, validates uh, that the contact will actually cause no radio interference. Again, we've got to be very mindful of the frequencies that are being used. Um, and access to the AWS Ground Station antenna gateway is also limited uh, by those authorized EC2 instances prior to uh, to contact with the satellite. So customers are in complete full control also of the encrypted keys that they use uh, to authorize um, and encrypt data uh, when communicating during those contact periods with the satellite. So to summarize, AWS Ground Station is now a thing. With Ground Station, you can focus on rapid innovation instead of operational planning and infrastructure oh, yeah. maintenance. Go check it out. Okay. So look, thanks, Pete. And Julie noted, I'll now be ready for any satellite conversations I'm going to be having with my customers in the future. Awesome. So let's pivot to something probably a little bit more real, something for everyone, not just for those who can afford a satellite. Let's talk about my favorite AWS service here, AWS Step Functions. So I've been playing with Step Functions for about two-ish years now, and it's pretty awesome. That's 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 a, that's a bit of a long time, Shane. But you know, you really shouldn't have favorite services. I know, but <laughs> I kind of do. It is pretty right, awesome. So tell us more. Okay, so just to recap, you know, if you haven't used Step Functions, it's part of the AWS Serverless platform. It makes it really simple to orchestrate Lambda functions for serverless applications. And you know, if you're in the serverless game today, I bet you probably haven't written too many apps with just one Lambda function. You know, that one entry point, that one module, one component. In fact, it's common to have lots of functions and they all need to often talk to each other. And that's where step function comes in as it's a reliable way to step through the functions of your application and coordinate. It supports uh, changes like parallel steps. You know, an example, you may want to process a raw and JPEG file differently, choice states, catch states, weights, and even retry logic. 
So it's pretty good. But when I got up on stage almost two years ago at Dev Days, I built a workflow with a callback modules using API Gateway. I actually remember that, Shane. That was the uh, a while back now. But uh, if you guys actually want to go and see, we actually have a recording of it. So if you uh, punch into your favorite search engine, advancing maintenance maturity of distributed IoT application with AWS Greengrass and AWS Step Functions, which is a real mouthful, uh, you'll be able to read all about this and see him in action. So a bit of a plug there, Shane. There we go. All right. It's also on the Step Function service homepage. So self-promotion over. That was a, that was it fun, was. you know. Um, but part of this demo was a manual approval process where my entire workflow would stop. It would send an email, and upon a user clicking approve or deny, my workflow would then continue. So what I just described there was a callback pattern. But why use this sort of architectural development pattern? Well, look, these are really important. Right? Callbacks uh, and you know help to provide manual checks or incorporate you know the human workflow factors into something, right? Uh, and to add additional robustness or, or gating into a, a business uh, critical workflow. And it actually helps to also avoid false positives because somebody actually has to eyeball it and perhaps click a button um, before proceeding. So sometimes you do need a human and a set of eyes uh, to review these, just like you do with um, a code review, perhaps. Yeah, look, exactly. So, you know, there is a need for humans after all, but in order to do so, I'm not going to lie here, we're all friends. It took me a little bit of time to get my head around this. You know, back then there was no way to do callbacks. So what did I do? I built one, of course, you know, being the builders we are. So cue the virtual whiteboard. You know, it required me to build a solution with API Gateway, Lambda, CloudWatch scheduled events. I was passing the step functions task token, which is uniquely identifies the active state machine and I have to pass in the result in my case, you know, it was approve or deny through Lambda, through SNS, through SES in order to generate my email. The result was then sent back via API gateway, proxy through to Lambda, back to my running state machine. You know, I'm out of mm. breath just talking about that. And it was cool and I'll tell people it was easy, but I won't lie, there was at times, you know, a little bit of head scratching, maybe the obligatory split screen between my code and our documentation. But now there's a better way, and I'm going to even let you run with this one, Pete, because Andy Katz and his crew from AWS Step Functions have delivered here. AWS Step Functions now supports callback patterns, which is basically what I've described above. Indeed, and Andy was actually at the Sydney Summit with us um, on uh, on uh, Twitch live stream. So yes, he good work, guys. So by the way, so callback patterns really help you automate the workflows for all of your apps, right? With uh, human activities and custom integrations with, you know, even third-party uh, services and applications. And what's really cool about this is that, uh, you know, you no longer really need, um, uh, you know, uh, API gateway, uh, lambdas and so forth. Uh, there's really a lot less to actually maintain. So in a callback pattern, um, step functions pauses execution uh, of the workflow until your application returns a token through the uh, you know, step functions application CLI, right, for the interface. Now, this is basically what we call the uh, the task token that Shane just mentioned earlier, and this helps you automate the workflow for your apps that need that human human activity or that step of uh, human interaction as a review or approval of documents or creating, you know, additional activities. Um, so you can use the callback pattern to build custom integration with lots of different systems, like I said, um, by passing back that uh, the task token. Uh, and step functions really helps you with the callback because there's a pattern now that supports Amazon, you know, ECS, SNS, SQS, AWS Fargate, as well as, of course, AWS Lambda, Shane. Excellent. So look, I'm still going to run with my way is more flexible, but I cannot deny the simplicity here. So if you log into the Step Functions console now or look at our documentation, there's even a sample project of this callback pattern in action. And I have to say, it is way simpler than my approach, and I'd be more than happy to use this. 
So the premise is the same. We are still passing a task token around as a way to identify the active state machine. Um, it's pretty easy and pretty slick, and more so, it is now native. The sample explains how to do this via SQS, pausing the workflow until it receives a callback from an external caller, which in their case is Lambda with a success or failure. So in short, step functions really, really good. I say it's my favorite AWS service, and that's because it's really super flexible, you know, potentially allowing you to rejig your app functionality without rewriting code just by changing the logic flow. It has lots of helpful states, and it makes it even more flexible. Support for callback patterns is included in AWS Step Functions pricing at no additional cost. Check it out. Yay, that's cool. Pete, there was a saying and still is a saying, code is eating the world. But I'd like to change that to something along the lines of containers are eating the world. It's a very hot topic in the circles I run in. And let's quickly cut to some quick, short fire container news. Absolutely, they certainly are. And um, now they're incredibly popular containers and for probably good reasons, right? It helps to uh, utilize your infrastructure a lot better. Um, and we focus on um, on those in past episodes in uh, tech chat. Um, but, you know, you certainly can't escape them, Shane. No, and look, people often talk about multimodal or two-speed systems in IT. Well, I know which stream containers are on at the moment because there is plenty of little incremental updates that have been happening on our platform around containers. And we're going to give you three new updates of close to near 10 that have happened in the past month to which we'll hope you find helpful. Absolutely. So when we launch uh, new services, as you guys may know, uh, we obviously cater for the masses. You know? So fully integrating the core needs of the community before rounding out uh, all of the feature sets. And this is how you could quickly uh, categorize this update that we're going to talk about shortly. We spoke about AppMesh a few episodes back and talked about patterns and anti-patterns for networking and how you know, for north-south traffic, you typically use an ALB as your ingress point and hide your containers behind source NAT of the application load balancer. Yes, and look, while this is kind of the norm, um, there are lots of edge cases where you may actually need to use uh, non-private um, IP addresses. And for those of you... Um, who are you know techie listeners? It's uh, RFC 1918 IPs. Um, because of this update, Amazon EKS now adds support for public IP addresses within clustered VPCs. Now, by the way, until mid-May of this year, uh, EKS did not support um, cluster creation if public IP addresses were being defined within the cluster. VPC. Now, this prevented customers that used AWS public IP addresses or those that brought their own IP addresses to AWS from uh, on-premises, you know, uh, being used with the EKS clusters for workloads they were actually running. Uh, And by the way, Shane, uh, we may have not mentioned this widely enough, but on April the 4th, uh, we actually did announce that you can bring your own IP addresses, BYOIP. And these are available in Dublin, London, Frankfurt, uh, in Canada. Uh, as well as Virginia, Ohio, and U.S. West. Not quite available in um, the APAC region yet, but uh, watch this space closely. So update two is monitoring, and I love monitoring, and it's really a solid pillar in any well-run organization. For EKS, in preview is CloudWatch Container Insights, which allows you to monitor, isolate, and diagnose your containerized applications and microservice environments. With this preview, you can track metrics that include utilization for resources, you know, as basic as CPU, memory, and disk, as well as things like container restarts. Yes, you can. And this is a, this is really telemetry that you're talking about that provides you lots of diagnostic information um, that's going to help you triage, you know, any kind of problems you're going to experience and get to them really quickly. Um, and by being able to... Um, see them, you can quickly isolate and resolve the root causes. So uh, it's CloudWatch. Uh, you know, you can obviously do, uh, you know, uh, set alarms on those metrics. Uh, and we just talked about percentile features of CloudWatch. You can certainly also use those. The last update on the EKS front is something that makes life easier for the ops people listening. 
If you've managed to play with EKS or perhaps you're using it in anger in production, you know the pain or should I say inconvenience of having to download and configure the binary for the AWS IAM Authenticator in order to authenticate using IAM to your EKS cluster. Do you know what I mean here, Pete, or are you too busy playing satellites? I don't know. Maybe satellites are the new EKS or ECS, Shane. <laughs> maybe they no, are. But listen, but now the, uh, look, now the um, EKS CLI um, includes a subcommand for generating the authentication token required for connecting into um, your Kubernetes clusters using the command line, which performs the magical part of generating the authentication token required for connecting to the Kubes cluster using the command line, which is a, a small but very, very important update that means one less browser window that you have to open in order to get those credentials. So we have covered a lot here today, Shane, and uh, we would love to keep on chatting. We're, uh, as always, running out of time. Tell me about it. A heap of updates have even banked some for future upcoming episodes. So today we came at you with a raft of short, sharp, but important updates that occurred in the month of May in the year 2019, if you're listening to this in the future. So to summarize, we started the show with a price cut for Amazon Connect because Everyone likes price cuts, and Amazon Connect is now 26% cheaper in two US regions. Next, we spoke about the additional CloudFormation support for both AWS Transfer for SFTP and AWS Backup, allowing you to automate the usage of these services. And for the record, backup is very important. I love you, AWS Backup <laughs> Service Team. And uh, moving on, we talked about CloudWatch percentiles as uh, CloudWatch uh, has introduced a support for percentiles on metric filters, which are particularly useful when you apply in those metrics uh, to, to view and troll through you know, large variances of data. Um, and they actually help you to reduce the number of false positives. And we then talked about GroundStation, uh, super exciting, has gone GA, so globally available. Uh, so, you know, prepare your satellites. Uh, there are no long-term commitments. You only pay for what you use in terms of antenna time when you connect to uh, your satellites for your on-demand communication needs. I then kept it real by talking about step function callbacks. Callback patterns automate workflows for applications with human activities and custom integrations with third-party services. And now it's native to step function. So a big win for customers who use step function. And finally, we were closing out the show with uh, some EKS news, which talked about uh, CloudWatch container insights for Amazon EKS. Uh, EKS support for public IP addresses uh, within cluster VPCs. And we uh, mentioned that you can now bring your own IP addresses into AWS. Uh, and finally, uh, EKS simplified cluster authentications through the CLI. So uh, that's a lot. Excellent. Thanks for your time here today, Pete. I hope we're still friends. Of course we are. Your badge will hopefully still work tomorrow. I hope it does. All right. <laughs> Listeners, join us again for another fun-filled adventure in the world of AWS Cloud. We'd love to hear what you like, perhaps what you don't like. Keep the feedback coming in. We love reading them. And don't be shy. Send us an email to awstechchat at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. Keep on building. Bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.